Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome to the podcast, and the first in a very special series of episodes telling real student stories. I'm pretty excited to bring you this series, to be honest. I've been gradually recording these interviews with coaching clients, with listeners, even with friends over the last 12 months or so, and I've handpicked my favourite five stories to share with you in the weeks to come. I'll be broadcasting these student stories in alternate weeks in between the How to Study Effectively audio course I'm bringing out for you. And I hope the two themes running through the next few weeks here on the podcast complement each other really nicely. How to Study Effectively, giving you the overview of of what effective studying looks like and and what you should be doing all in one place. Uh, And then the student stories telling you all about how real students are putting all that stuff into action and inspiring you with the results uh, they're getting. So I've kind of got two aims for the student stories element. Firstly, as I say, I hope to just inspire and motivate you to take action on some of the good advice that comes your way on the podcast. I think there's something really powerful in hearing how real students are succeeding using the kinds of strategies we talk about here on the podcast week in, week out. But it's about more than that. The student stories I've chosen to tell all have one thing in common. They're from students who encountered struggle, challenge or difficulty of some kind at some point in their studies, who nevertheless managed to find a way to overcome those hurdles that they were facing. So the power of mindset and telling yourself the right stories about how it's possible to overcome challenges is absolutely key if you do want to overcome those challenges. And when it comes to building a winning mindset and setting yourself up for success, even in the face of challenge, a really, really powerful thing you can do is listen to the stories from students who faced, you know, maybe relatable challenges to the ones you're facing. Students who've gone before you who faced challenges and found a way to overcome them. If they can do it, then you can too. And I hope that's one of the messages you'll be able to take away from the episodes coming your way in this series. Look, if you're listening to this and thinking, well, look, I've never remotely struggled in my studies. It's all been fine. I've aced it all without too much uh, too much difficulty. Then first, well, lucky you. Um, but second, chances are you probably will face some challenge and some struggle one day, even if it's not right now. If you're flying through your high school days, you may well be on your way to a top university. And I hope that is the case for you. But chances are, once you do level up to the next level of study, be it university or college, or maybe even, you know, you need to go even higher than that before you start to struggle. I don't know. But for most students, you hit a point where you do start to find things tough. And that's when having the lessons from these student stories episodes will be really, really helpful. So our first story is very similar to what I've just been describing. You're going to be meeting Katie, who's from the UK, who flew through high school, worked quite hard, admittedly, but did really, really well in her A-level exams at high school here in the UK and ended up going to Oxford University to study maths. Very, very intellectual, very, very competitive course. She found things hard (laughs) at Oxford, as you're about to hear. And in fact, things got so bad, she ended up pulling out partway through her first year. 
The story ultimately has a happy ending, though. So listen on to hear just how she turned things around and what we can all learn from her story. So for a bit of context, I actually started our conversation today uh, by asking how old she was uh, and what life looks like for her now, which may seem like a slightly unusual question, uh, but you'll see why I thought it was relevant uh, when you hear her answers to those questions, as she's in quite a special and quite interesting position for where she's at in her life, as you're about to hear now. I am 36 years of age and I'm financially independent. So it means that I have enough money coming in for my investments that I do not have to work for money if I don't want to. So it frees me up to spend my time doing cool projects, which at the moment I am throwing myself fully into data visualization and making pretty graphs about anything and everything that I can get my hands on in terms of data. Sounds fascinating. I fully geek out and I get to spend all day geeking out, which is kind of cool. Are you just learning that stuff for, for fun or are you sort of working towards qualification? Or No, just for fun. I've been playing around with a piece of software called Tableau. I'm just using the free version of Tableau. It's called Tableau Public. I really like, well, there are days that I really like it. There are days that I find it incredibly frustrating, but um, generally it's fun. It's, it's quite easy. It's just drag and drop and you can make these really pretty graphs. And I've got maps of where we spend money around the world because we're currently nomadic, meaning we don't have a home. We just move from place to place, hanging out in cool places. And I've got spending data of where we spend money in different places and different categories. And yeah, I, I love it. Fantastic. So, I, I mean, I'd love to ask you briefly at the end a little bit more about your, your kind of thoughts on, on managing finances, because you've obviously got some serious lessons to, to share with us all. But first, I want to just come back to your student days. So, you've obviously uh, you've obviously got some real interests in uh, data. And, you know, I'd just love to hear a little bit about what you were like. Let's go right the way back to maybe kind of late late school days, so kind of late high school or uh, maybe early student days in university. Paint us a little bit of a picture of, of kind of what you were like back then in terms of your approach to studying and work and what you were good at and what you were less good at. I was incredibly competitive. I constantly compared myself to everyone else and I was like, I want to be the best. I want to be the best. Mostly in the more scientific subjects, I very much liked things that had an answer and I knew if the answer was correct or not, because you can look at the answer and it tells you, you know, did you get the same answer? Yes. Okay, good. I can move on with my life. I very much avoided what I would probably then call the gray subjects, anything that was not so black and white. So any thing to do with English or I don't know, any, any essay based subjects I completely avoided. However, I did do French A-level, so I'm not sure how that fit into things. But yeah, I loved maths. Maths was my big thing. I did double maths, so I did two maths A-levels and I absolutely loved it. I worked very, very hard. I would buy the textbook that went along with the module that I was studying and I would do each and every practice question, all the questions that I could get my hands on to make sure that I was thoroughly prepared for tests and exams. I think I think maybe I was a little bit overprepared at times, but I just very much enjoyed the feeling of being prepared, of being, of knowing my stuff, of understanding as well. I wasn't I wasn't just regurgitating stuff. I felt like I properly understood what I was doing um, because I had so thoroughly immersed myself in it. And I very much had an identity that I am very clever, I'm very good at maths. I want to be the best. I am the best. And I would seek out competition and be like, oh, Tristan, he's looking like he's quite good. I've got to work a little bit harder than Tristan. And people would say, oh, you're really clever. You're really good at maths. And part of me 
liked that and enjoyed that part of identity of, yes, I am very good. But I also wanted them to know that I'd worked jolly hard to be able to have that label as well, to be able to say that I'm good at that because I had worked very hard for it. Quick sidebar at this point. Back in episode 43 of the podcast, I asked rock star motivation psychologist Dr. Erica Patel if there were any motivational strategies she would particularly discourage students from using. Let's just take a quick second now to replay how she answered that question. I think the the practice or myth I wish I could debunk would be that social comparison is a good way to motivate oneself. I feel like students often rely a lot on social comparison to motivate themselves. And while that competition does motivate, I feel like there is a lot of psychological costs of using that strategy that maybe make it not worth it. So when I was listening to Katie describing a moment ago how heavily she was leaning on uh, competition to get herself fired up to succeed, I admit I was starting to feel a little worried for her. I went on to ask Katie if, with the benefit of hindsight, she felt that her competitiveness might have led to some problems for her. Yes, very much so. I got into Oxford to study maths and I was so excited. That was the big dream, the big goal. Because I had excelled academically at school, I was very much encouraged down that route of applying to Oxford or Cambridge. And I never even questioned that. I just thought, yeah, yeah, that's the natural progression. And I was very excited when I got in. And I kind of saw that as my reward and decided that I would then party a lot and not really try very hard at uni. And that was the beginning of me falling apart quite spectacularly. I kind of lost sense of who I was because I did have this identity of I am the best, I I work hard, I understand everything. And that is a real struggle when you are suddenly surrounded by people that are the best from each and every school that they came from. I was a big fish in a small pond at school, I guess you would say, to use a cliche. And then suddenly I was a little fish in a very big pond and there there was a guy that was, I think he was only 15 and he was exceptionally clever and he was one of the best students in the class. And my constant comparison with others had worked very well at school because I managed to be the best in my eyes and didn't work quite so well when my whole kind of self-esteem and identity was built around being the best. And suddenly I wasn't. And I kind of didn't try anymore, which was another part of my identity that I was very hardworking, that I was diligent. So I lost that part of my character as well and fell apart emotionally and got depression and I couldn't carry on. I did just more than a year. So I did my first year exams and passed those, but left shortly into my second year. And so what was what was the ultimate trigger to to leaving? I just such an emotional mess that I couldn't I couldn't function. I was just in tears a lot of the time. And then finally I think the decision was kind of taken out of my hands and my mum said like this is enough and you just need to take a break. And I was medically suspended was the term. They didn't really know how to cope with me. This was in 2002. So this was probably a bit before mental health was discussed as much as it is now. I remember one meeting with the dean of the college that I was at and he said, I expect you to pack your bags and leave. You're not allowed to live in this town. You must leave now. And I was like, whoa, I don't think he knew how to cope with me. 
and what I was going through. Do you think there's anything anyone around you could have done differently to have helped you back then? No, I think the answer is no. I think I didn't have the emotional maturity or the experience, life experience of knowing how to deal with something like this where things aren't going quite my way. I was used to things going my way. I'd done very well at school academically. I'd done very well at sport. I'd done very well at music. Uh, I think this is the first time, I was going to say this is the first time things got tough, but things had been tough before, but I always felt in my control because if I didn't understand how to do a certain maths problem or anything like that, I would just figure it out eventually. And I, I knew that I was capable of doing that. So I guess I had quite a, a sheltered childhood in the sense that there was no big trauma. I mean, there's the normal fun and games of being a teenager and growing up and being grumpy with your parents, but there was nothing, no emotional challenges in the same way as I was facing. And I had a few friends around me who I think desperately wanted to help, but equally they didn't know how to help. And it's the sort of thing where it has to come from you to be able to resolve things. But like I said, I didn't have the tools or skills to know where to even begin with that. So I think it was just something that I had to go through to mature and to learn how to handle situations, how to handle emotions and how to, yeah, how to exist in the real world. Yeah. No, tough, tough times, tough times. So you left Oxford uh, under maybe slightly challenging instructions from the Dean uh, on, your, on your last day. Tell, tell us what happened next. Kind of went home, back to live with my parents, regrouped, spent a good few months in tears, crying, figuring life out. <laughs> then I got a few temp office jobs once I felt able to face the world again and did that for a few months. And I'd always been a saver and I was saving all my money and my parents at that time weren't charging me any rent. So I was basically had kept all my wages and didn't spend any of it. And my mum was like, uh, why don't you do something with this money that you have? Why don't you go away for a few months abroad or do some traveling or something? And I was like, oh, that never would have occurred to me. I think I would have just enjoyed watching my bank balance continually creep up. But I decided to go to Costa Rica to do a gap year type project teaching English and coaching football in some of the poorest areas of San Jose, which is the capital of Costa Rica. Uh, and that's where I met Alan, my husband. This was in early 2005. That was a bit of a game changer as well, because he had lots of ideas of how to cope with these sorts of emotional times and how was best to study and how was best to live. So that was a big turning point. And then I reapplied to lots of unis. I decided my place at Oxford had been left open and I could have gone back if I wanted to, but I decided to leave and to start again. So I studied uh, statistics at UCL as my uh, second attempt at degree. And I always find it very amusing that because I was 21 when I started, I was classified as a mature student, which I told everyone, I'm a mature student. I'm very mature. But Alan helped coach me through figuring out which you need to go to. Because I'd already had my grades when I was applying to these universities, I kind of was pretty confident that I'd get in. I got into five out of six of the ones I applied to, I think. And yeah, Alan really helped me to figure out which was the right you need to go to. 
I played football at quite a high level at that time and I wanted somewhere that I'd be able to play football. But it never occurred to me that I could play football for a club rather than for the university and ended up, because my parents lived on the outskirts of London, I ended up choosing to go to London so that I could continue playing with my local team that I was already playing for. So that's quite interesting because, you know, I have lots of conversations with students that really the kind of amount of thought that goes into choosing where to go to university is sometimes terrifyingly little. Um, So what were kind of on your list of considerations back then when you were deciding where to go to? Because it sounded like you put a bit more thought into that decision next time, second time around. Well, I think there were two sorts of rounds of thought. One was sort of pre-Alan's input and one was post-Alan's input. So I had already applied before I met Alan. So that was fixed. And I remember applying to all campus universities except for UCL because I think I liked the idea of living on campus, having a compact area that was the uni and all your life is there. Um, I can't remember why I put UCL in there. So I'm not sure how that one crept in, but I'm glad it did because I very much enjoyed my time there and where I ended up. I wanted a campus. I wanted uh, I wanted to be able to play football at a decent level. I'm sure I, it's a long time ago now. I'm sure I must have looked in detail at the, what the courses were as well. And I guess having had some experience of Oxford and knowing a bit more about what uni's like, then that that was useful experience. Uh, and then Alan sat me down and was like, okay, what do you actually want to get out of this? What do you want to do? And I remember the football piece being very important. And like I said, it hadn't occurred to me that I could continue to play football for my club rather than for the uni. And the downside to UCL was that its football team was not particularly strong. Uh, And Alan was like, well, why don't you just play for your local club and go to uni at UCL and live at home? And I was like, whoa, I didn't even think of that. That was way down the list. And Alan might have had his own agenda at that point because uh, he was living in the south of England. And I think the other five unis were all in the north of England and we just started our relationship so I think there might some of that might have come into play a little bit. So you ended up at UCL and by all accounts you did extremely well there uh, certainly judging by the the first you you came out with at the end of your degree. What went right second time round where it hadn't quite worked out well first time round? I was a lot more intentional about why I was there. This time I was there to study, I was there to get good grades, I was there to to study. And I treated it as almost like a job, like a nine to five job that I would go to lectures during the day, do my homework and assignments during the day, and then have evenings and weekends to myself to socialize, to spend with Alan, to play football. Um, So that's a complete different approach to how I approached Oxford. I remember I just, I loved it. I felt in control. I knew what I was doing. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Were there any particular strategies you were using around how to study effectively and and learn stuff that that you remember having picked up by the time you got to UCL? I think I had quite good techniques from when I was a lot younger. I think this was probably with the influence of my mum. When I was first started secondary school and was studying for exams, I would like I would do a lot of repetition, I would write everything out. I would test myself. The example I'm thinking of is French vocabulary. I would kind of fold the piece of paper over and write the French on one side and make myself answer the English on the other side. Spaced retrieval practice, people. Spaced retrieval practice. (laughs) It's probably a very low-tech version of what you can do now with online flashcards and stuff. I was chatting to a coaching client this morning and I continue in 
basically in his case, I was uh, suggesting pen and paper is definitely well worth switching to uh, from all the sort of fancy digital stuff because you avoid using your laptop and the whole world of distractions that opens up when you have a laptop in front of you. Uh, and it's just more flexible. I just love the flexibility. You can write anything you want on paper, whereas uh, it's much more rigid when you're doing these uh, online tools. Okay, so interesting. Sounded like you had quite good uh, learning techniques right from the right from quite an early point then. Yeah. I remember doing a lot of chanting and pacing when I was learning stuff. So walking round and round the dining room table, saying things over and over again. Later on, I would record audio tracks of myself reading out my notes and listen to those back. Yeah, making up just funny ways of saying things. I remember studying for GCSE food technology with my friend Lauren. And I can still remember to this day, even though that was 20 years ago, saying accelerated freeze drying, AFD, AFD, AFD. It's like, that's stuck in my head. I don't necessarily know anything more than that, but it's definitely stuck in my head. And I think just the fact that we were just being silly and playing around and coming up with silly ways of remembering things. I don't know how or why it occurred to us to do that, whether anyone had told us to do that, but something that we did from quite an early age. Nice. So I'm kind of hearing the main difference between Oxford and UCL was perhaps a bit the course. You'd found a course you were more excited about at UCL, the applied statistics rather than the pure maths, um, but also your your mindset and your maturity. Yes. For a long time after going to UCL and having the success that I had there, I kept thinking, oh, like, what would it be like if I went back to Oxford? Would I have, would I be able to do it? Kind of feeling like I had unfinished business and wanting to prove to myself that I could have succeeded there, which I'm sure I could have done. One of the things that I disliked about Oxford was the course and finding one that I loved was a big part of the success that I had. I don't think you can fully isolate those different factors because I was in a much better place emotionally and able to cope with things. And I think that's one element, but all the others kind of interplay with each other. I often ask what I call my my sort of time machine question. Uh, you know, if you could go back in time and, and give yourself some advice when you were younger, you know, what what would you want to say? I'd, I'd just be kind of fascinated to take that moment, you know, maybe in your first sort of term at, at Oxford, uh, you know, first, second term. If you could go back to Katie at that point in time, other than the advice to maybe choose a different course, <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd sort of say to her about how to approach studies to develop that kind of maturity of mindset that you, you've, you since developed, you know, what, what would your kind of advice and counsel be to her at that, at that point in time? Oh, there's so much I would say. Whether she would listen is another thing. Because I often think about these sorts of questions. And then I think it's hard, isn't it? Because at that time, your head's in a certain place and you kind of have to experience it for yourself in order to learn the lesson. You, it's hard for someone else to tell you how to be or what to do with the benefit of the extra years of experience. But I constantly wanted to prove myself and that was part of wanting to be the best and to have the attention and to have the recognition. And I got a a sense of pride and importance from people thinking that I was the best. So I think one thing would be to choose a better metric for success than being the best whether that's comparing, I think comparing yourself with yourself rather than other people. Am I getting better? Am I understanding more than I did last week? 
Yeah, I think that's a huge one to to set the metric that actually is going to be good for your academic success, but also for your mental health. I was always con- constantly chasing achievement after achievement to feel like I was worthy. I think this was massively linked up with self-esteem as well, that for whatever reason, I didn't think I was good enough and I was constantly trying to prove that I was. So if I could get her to listen and tell her that she's already enough as she is, was, I think that would be a big one. Absolutely. And anything on the anything on the work ethic side? I cut corners, I think. So because I felt out of control and I didn't really understand when I had the uh, homework assignments, rather than trying to understand and answer the question like I understood it, I would get as many textbooks as I could and see if I could find a question like that that had been asked in the textbook so that I could find the answer and kind of massively cut corners and like chill out. There's plenty of time to do both working and partying and having fun. I mean, as a student, I think I had 15 hours of lectures maximum a week. That leaves plenty of time to play football, have fun and do the work as well. I mean, it's a funny one because like I said, I focus a lot on partying, but I do remember studying quite a lot as well. But I think it was with that almost half-hearted thing of like, almost resign, like, oh, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm going to do it. Like I always did my assignments. I was always conscientious enough to do that, but just not in the same thorough, rigorous way that I was used to. And there was that feeling of not being in control that started to unravel. Yeah, it sounds like such a contrast to how you're describing your approach at school, where you went through every single question and not only tried to do the questions, but just really get under the skin of the topic and really properly understand what was going on. It seems like you, you know, whether it was the lure of the you know parties going on or whether it was sort of the anxiety of, ah, oh, I don't quite understand this. Am I ever going to understand it? Or a combination of all of that that, you know, led you to take the shortcuts that ultimately are going to make your life a bit hard in, in the exam. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So Katie, let's fast forward uh, a few years. I, I know you're now, as as well as working on data visualizations and having fun learning Tableau, I know you've also developed quite a strong interest in personal finance. I mean, there's, there's not many 36-year-olds that are effectively retired um, or, or financially independent, as, as you say. Do you have a message, uh, I guess in brief, for, for students, because I know there's a huge amount of detail behind it, uh, about the importance of personal finance and indeed where, if they're interested, could they perhaps find out more uh, from from yourself and your your husband, Alan? Yeah, Alan and I have developed a course called Take Control of Your Finances, where we take people through kind of what it says really is to know where your money's going, know how much money you have, and then build on that if anyone has any debt, how to pay off the debt, the importance of beliefs around money. And if you believe that having money makes you a bad person, the chances are that if you get money, you're going to do things to sabotage that and get rid of the money so that you're not a bad person. So it's as well as the sort of the practical tips of how to uh, take control of your finances and build wealth. It's also the emotional side of things as well to make sure that you're pulling in the right direction towards that goal that you want. This is completely free course. We're not going to upsell you anything. We're not don't want anything out of you. We just want to help. As William said, we've got to the point where we don't have to work if we don't want to. And this is a a philanthropic thing that we want to do just to help as many people as we can, because the importance of finances is huge. A friend of ours was saying recently that 
the finance game, if you will, the finance game that we all have to play. It's not something that you can opt out of. By contrast, you might choose to play tennis, but not everyone has to. So not everyone needs to know the rules of tennis or how to play, but you can't avoid playing the game of finances and people don't understand the rules. They don't understand the terminology. And that's so important. You need to understand this stuff. And I think there's habits that you could pick up as a student that could either set you in a good stead or set you behind. I guess the big one would be debt, which I was lucky enough. I think I was the last intake year before they increased tuition fees massively. I worked in the holidays to earn money to kind of get back to zero. I used my overdraft to to live and then got back to zero by working hard during the holidays and getting temporary office jobs and things. I chose to focus on my studies during term time. So I didn't have a part-time job or anything during term time, but then worked as much as I could during the holidays. And I'd say as well, it's, it's fine to spend money, but spend money on things that matter to you, not just to keep up with your friends. So for your friends are going out partying, but you don't actually really want to, you'd rather have a nice meal than spend money on the meal, not on the, on the partying. It's a big one to spend in line with your values and spend on things that bring you joy but only if you have that money and you don't have to go further into debt that's fantastic and i think the teaching you and alan provide is is really excellent just such an opportunity if you are listening as a student to start thinking about some of this stuff early on in life even if you don't put every single bit of advice into practice straight away just thinking about kind of these some of these things now rather than in your 40s or 50s just puts you on such a different trajectory sort of financially through your life and those kind of little little decisions little wins really add up and compound over the years and put you in a totally different position in a you know decade or two's time there's plenty of people on the course that have said oh i wish i knew about this 10 years ago i wish i knew about this 20 years ago so exactly yeah take advantage of it now whilst whilst you're young well, Katie, thank you ever so much. It's been such fun to, to kind of dive into your story and, and thank you for being so kind of open uh, with it. I, I know there'll be a lot of people that, that really resonate with with some of your descriptions, uh, particularly of the, the kind of tougher years and, and so inspiring of how you managed to get back on top uh, and uh, come out with a really great, great result at the end of it uh, from UCL and obviously go on to a successful career and, and, and now a, you know financially free present. So thank you for sharing your wisdom. Uh, it's been such fun uh, talking to you today. Thanks, William. That's really wonderful stuff. And thanks again, Katie, for being with us today. And if you want to learn a little bit more about what we were talking about at the end just now and being financially healthy, I've linked up some details about the excellent free courses Katie runs along with her husband, Alan, in the show notes. I'm big fans of both Katie and Alan. Uh, in addition to learning a thing or two about finance from them, Alan himself has also taught me a huge amount about entrepreneurship over the years and is a big reason this podcast even exists in the first place. These days, Alan runs his own podcast. It's called The Rebel Entrepreneur, which is hands down my top recommendation these days. If anyone is at all interested in entrepreneurship and starting up their own business ventures online or otherwise. And I've linked up The Rebel Entrepreneur podcast in the show notes for you as well. So there was a huge amount in that conversation with Katie today. So let me round up my top four takeaways from everything we talked about. Number one, don't be too competitive. 
remember what Erica Patel says about competition being a potentially psychologically harmful strategy over the long run. Uh, and indeed, Katie's experience would prove that out. So by all means, compete against yourself from yesterday, as Katie herself suggests, but try to avoid becoming overly reliant on competing against those around you. Takeaway number two, I really liked how Katie described her approach to studying maths when she was at her best, such as back in high school, and presumably when she went on to study at UCL. That digging into each question, that working them through, that kind of figuring out what's going on and getting to proper understanding. Great lessons there and a really nice echo of Joachim Cassell's advice on studying maths from way back in episode four, where he tells us to trust the process. Just know that it will come. Don't give up. Persevere. Find that first bit of understanding. And it will just, well, waterfall from there. And that's episode number four, if you want to hear the rest of that conversation with Joachim Cassell on studying maths. Takeaway number three from Katie's conversation, the power of good study strategies when combined with the right mindset. So I thought it was really interesting. Katie was describing using retrieval practice and spaced repetition and mnemonic strategies, all really good strategies that we're covering in the How to Study Effectively course, all from a really early stage, which was great and should have stood her in really good stead. And for a long while it did, and she did really well through high school, but it was that missing piece, that mindset and that work ethic that she had to bring in as well when she arrived at University College London, UCL, uh, and that combination of the right study strategies and the right mindset was what ultimately enabled her to fly at a university level and ultimately graduate with that first class degree, that top degree. And my fourth and final takeaway, remember the importance of the stories we tell ourselves. So mindset expert Professor Tim Wilson describes back in episode 42 how he started to get low test grades at one point. And rather than getting discouraged and looking for shortcuts, he saw that as a trigger to work a little harder, work a little smarter. Telling yourself a better story, so rather than, I can't do this, I'd better give up or look for an easy way out. But instead telling yourself, okay, I can do this. Maybe I can't do it yet, but I will be able to do it. I just need to get smarter about how I study or persevere for a bit longer than I'm used to. Trust that process, as Joachim says. You know, telling yourself that better version of the story is really easy for me to sit here and suggest to you. But I know full well it's not always that easy to listen to and actually build into your heart and put into practice. But as we learned from that episode back with Tim, one of the best ways that you can go about changing your story is by listening to the stories from those who've gone before you, struggled, found a way through. So as I mentioned right back at the start, that is one of the biggest things I want to do for you through this series of student stories here on the podcast. So if there were any parts of Katie's struggles that resonated with you, that you felt, oh, you know, I I know what she means, I I know what she's going through. You know, I hope her story of ultimate success may give you some inspiration and some hope that better things are going to be possible for you too. So there are several more student stories coming your way on the podcast this season, uh, covering students at high school uh, and students who are out of university entirely and doing professional exams. So we're covering the whole range of experience of exams, whole range of students from around the world, different ages, stages, outlooks on life. So I hope there'll be a little bit of something for everyone. We've got Rose from Australia, who's a high school student coming up next. And I I just love her her story, her interview. Uh, She's got an incredible attitude to what we were talking about just now and, uh, you know, 
building that mindset for positive change, her, her attitude towards that is is just uh, out, outstanding. Um, so I'm really looking forward to bringing you that episode in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, do tune in next week for the next instalment of the course on how to study effectively. Uh, that's going to be a good one. I would just want to take a moment to say thank you for listening today. And genuinely, I wish you every success in your studies. Wasn't that wonderful? If you're feeling inspired, why not leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app? It would make our day. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.